All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this Sunday school that we get to be part of. We thank you for the legacy of Van Til and Bonson and apologetics. Help us, Lord, to be encouraged in our walk that you have given us the tools and the faith and the power of Christ to spread the gospel to all the world. Amen. All right, this is our last session on Van Tilian apologetics. Just to recap, last time, we finished the argument last time. We went through the remaining axioms, went through some objections to them. We then deduced a few theorems and then ended with the proving the truth of Christianity. We then went back through the checklist of Van, the components of Van Til's argument and saw that the argument fulfills all those components. We then presented Van Til's argument in its simplest form, something you could present to a five-year-old, and then went through three further levels of complexity from there. So now we turn to the cleanup work. So what are some things that I think need to be cleaned up from the writings and teachings of Van Til and Bonson? And the first one is that this argument is actually in two distinct forms. This is often missed, where the people confuse and try to combine the critique of unbelief with the presentation and the defense of Christianity. And, it, and if you do, and what they don't understand is that each is, is sufficient to prove the truth of Christianity. So we're going to get through what, the, what that is. But this is often presented as two aspects of one argument, but they're actually two different arguments that get to the same conclusion. All right, so what I'm going to call what we went through is the direct form. This is the direct argument. And in that, we start with God's truth, start with what Scripture teaches and some other axioms, and they go, we go directly then to the truth of Christianity. I think that makes sense to call that then the direct method. This is the direct form. An indir- well, and so we saw that here. See all the axioms and then how we move then to the truth of Christianity. All right. Well, we didn't talk about unbelief here, though. But have we refuted unbelief in making good on our conclusion? Have we, have we refuted unbelief? Yes, we have. Because if you prove the truth of Christianity, everything contrary to it is then false. And so we have proven the falsity of unbelief through the truth of Christianity. All right, but there's another way to do this. This is what I would call is the indirect method. In that method, you start with unbelief. You start with autonomy. You assume it's true. And then from, from there, you deduce a falsehood. Now, if you assume it's true and it implies a falsehood, what do we know about it? What do we know about autonomy then? It's false. Very good. It is false. And so we could do that. We could do that method. We don't start with Christianity then in the sense of like going through what scripture teaches explicitly right away. We start with autonomy and show that it it leads to falsehood. Now, if it's false, we also then have to prove that there are only two options, Christianity or autonomy. And if we can do that, if we can prove there are only two options and we've refuted autonomy, what can we conclude? There are only two options, Christianity and autonomy. We refute autonomy. What then is true? Christianity. Christianity. Now, we'd have to prove there are only two options. Right? We'd have to prove that first. Uh, but the, yes, then Christianity is true. I think it's more natural to call that the indirect method because we're, we're refuting unbelief to get then to the truth of Christianity. 
Now, what's confusing about Bonson and Van Til when they talk about direct and indirect, they use these terms differently. See, they take what I just presented here as direct and indirect, they put that as one argument and call it the indirect method. Those two things together are indirect. And the direct method is autonomous reasoning, where we just go right to the evidences in some kind of autonomous fashion and then reason with the unbeliever. So a more Romanist or Arminian kind of apologetic. And I think this is very confusing language. I don't think it helps in what's going on. And so I'm trying to, trying to pull those things apart and, and, and clarify our terms. So let's, let's see how they, they talk about this. Until says, the method of reasoning by presupposition may be said to be indirect rather than direct. The issue between believers and non-believers in Christian theism cannot be settled by a direct appeal to facts or laws whose nature and significance is already agreed upon by both parties to the debate. Okay, so we can't, we can't just go through this. Um, and so he clearly means this in an autonomous way. That's what he means by the direct method. Which means, which then would tell you that, I mean, it's just so counter though to how we use the term direct. Like if we just start with God's truth and then get to Christianity is true, that's, that's very direct, right? That's a natural way to use the term. But he exclusively uses this for autonomous reasoning. He says, Roman Catholics and Arminians are bound to use the direct method of approach to the natural man, the method that assumes the essential correctness of a non-Christian and non-theistic conception of reality. And then Bonson uh, you know, uses, this, uses it the same way. He says, thus there can be no direct proof offered for the truth of either perspective. The argument between believer and unbeliever must then be indirect, admitting the impossibility of a neutral approach to reasoning and facts. Okay, so now but Van, Van Til acknowledges that, we, um, that there's this casting down of unbelief, then he'll also acknowledge that we have to affirm the truth of Christianity. And so he, he goes th through that, and I'm not going to read through all of his quotes. We've gone through some of that before. Uh, but very much placing ourselves on the position of the unbeliever and showing that it reduces to, to folly. But what's missed in this is... If you can do that, if you truly can take all of unbelief and refute it, and you've already shown that there are only two options, then you have, you have demonstrated the truth of Christianity. And what's thought is that if you do that, you still have to then set forth the truth of Christianity. And there's a confusion there that these arguments do not have to go together. In fact, they don't. They are two separate arguments that both go to the same conclusion. So Bonson here says, in order to display this truth to the unbeliever, the presuppositionalist is willing to think things through in terms of what the unbeliever claims are his basic assumptions. Notice this. And then, for the sake of comparison, he invites the unbeliever to think things through in terms of the Christian's basic assumptions. Okay, but if you make good on the former, you don't have to make good on the latter. And if you make good on the latter, it leads to the destruction of the former. And so, and this is uh, evidenced in Van Til's earliest publication, 1927. He is in Princeton Theological Review, if I remember correctly. He's reviewing Alfred North Whitehead's uh, metaphysics. And Van, this is Van Til's earliest publication, and Bonson says that it exhibits the salient lines of Van Til's approach. And I would agree with that. But notice how this is presented as this is all one argument, and these are the four components. But they're actually, if you bring them apart, they're two separate arguments. So here, here are the first three points. 
locating the opponent's crucial presuppositions, okay, that's first, criticizing them and their autonomous attitude, and then exposing their destruction, right, the, the tension that holds in this. So reducing it to absurdity, right, which is all the indirect method as I uh, defined it. And then he says, and then setting forth the only viable alternative, biblical Christianity. Okay, but we've already would have demonstrated that if you make good of A through C and assuming that you can show that there are only two options. So even here, it's, it's, and this is at the end of Bonson's life when, when he wrote this, um, there's this not understanding that these two things are actually separate arguments. He says, this is a synopsis of the indirect or two-step apologetical procedure that presuppositional apologetics advocates. The first step is to lay out the Christian worldview in terms of which human experience is intelligible and the objections of the unbeliever can be contextually defeated. The second step is to show that within the unbeliever's worldview, nothing is intelligible, not even objections to the Christian's viewpoint. The, now notice this, the order in which these two steps in the argument, singular, right, the one argument, are taken are not important. Okay, but these are two separate arguments. Okay, now, what's interesting is, is he knows, Bonson knows that there are only two options, and he says in the same book, Van Til's Apologetic, which he wrote at the end of his life, he says, the refutation of the unbelieving one is an indirect proof of the other. So even, even Bonson was, having a, uh, was, was confusing these two things to be, as being one argument. But he understood that if he makes good on the refutation of unbelief, he has then proven the truth of Christianity. Now, how would you do that? Right? How would you make good on the indirect approach? So I have demonstrated the, the direct approach, but how would you actually do the indirect? Bonson was the best that I've ever seen at destroying unbelief in individual instances, right? Whether it was Islam or atheism or Buddhism or any of these other religions, but he never refuted it as a category. He never refuted all of unbelief in that indirect way. So I think this is actually pretty difficult to do, and I've never actually seen it seen it done. So I'm curious to try it. So I'm going to try it going forward. After now that the direct has been done, I'm going to. And if I don't succeed on it, it's not a big deal because we already have the direct, so it's, it's okay. But I am very curious to see if this can, be, this can actually, actually be done. <clears throat> because as he admits, no human, not even a Christian apologist, has the omniscience to know all possible rival hypotheses. Right? So you can't know every possible instance of unbelief. How then are you going to refute then all of them? So he knows you don't do this one-off. Okay, so that's the first cleanup. The second one is the topic of self-deception is not central to Van Til's apologetic. So self-deception is where people believe something to be true and then yet don't believe it to be true. They know it to be true and yet in a sense don't know it to be true. You say, well, that seems kind of weird. Well, it is, but it happens in our lives all the time. When we don't like things that are true, when they're uncomfortable for us, we deceive ourselves, and we, we say that this is not true. Um, <clears throat> so when I, I used to coach basketball at a private Christian school, and I'll never forget this conversation where this mother called me up, and she was concerned about the, the attention her child uh, was getting at practice and how much playing time that he was getting. Now this child, bless his heart, had no ability whatsoever at basketball. He couldn't jump, he couldn't run, he couldn't catch, he couldn't pass, he couldn't do anything. But he was out there and praise God, that's great. 
but he has no natural ability for basketball whatsoever. But she was saying on the phone that if, if only I would give him as much attention as I give everyone else, and if he got as much playing time as everyone else, he would be just as good. And she was really advocating for this on the phone. And I heard her out and just kind of was nice and then got out of the conversation, okay? Because there, no, there was no success in that conversation. But does she actually believe in her heart that little Johnny is that great at basketball? No, our actions many times are evidence of what we actually believe. Our actions are. Well, in the summer, is she sending little Johnny off to all these basketball camps, pouring thousands of dollars into his untapped potential? No, of course not. He's going to things he's more gifted in, like, I don't know, uh, acting or band or something like that, that he has more natural ability in, which is fine. She's not pouring that money into little Johnny. And why is that? Because he's not good. And she knows that. Okay? But yet that's uncomfortable for her as she sees the game. So what does she do? She deceives herself and then calls me on the phone and wants to advocate for Johnny's playing time. Okay? And this happens all the time and in other areas as well, especially with our children because it's uncomfortable for us to think of our children as being sinners and actually having problems, right? And our, our own lives have, having problems. Okay, so the unbeliever, though, is in this situation uh, par excellence, right? So he, he knows God exists, and yet he suppresses that with every bone in his body. He suppresses it. Well, how do we then account for that? Now, Bon, or Van Til struggled with this. This is one of the harder things for him to comprehend, how the unbeliever can know and yet not know God and believe and yet not believe. And this is actually tricky psychologically. And Bonson spent his dissertation at USC on this topic. He spent his time there on this topic. And I think wrote uh, the best assessment I've read on it. Like, it's great. But the misunderstanding, though, is that the reason why he picked that topic is because Van Til believed that that issue was at the heart of his apologetic. And Bonson agreed with him. And it says this much, that it's at the heart of Van Til's apologetic. But I never went through this in the, in the, the proof. We, even if I don't understand how an unbeliever believes and yet doesn't believe, even if I can't, I, there's, you, can, you can't demonstrate to me that's a contradiction right, because we have two different senses of belief that are acting there. How I put that together, though, right, or if I can, does not dictate whether I can make good on the argument or not. So it is not central to the apologetic, which is surprising because of how much time has been put into this, uh, but it is not central. And I think this is one of the ha hallmarks of when, when we do things like proofs, and actually work through things deductively. It clarifies, it forces you to focus on what are the essential definitions, what are the essential assumptions, and then how do we get to our conclusion. What you thought was central many times can become non-essential. All right, the next one is burden of proof. You probably heard this when you watch debates. The people debate about whose job it is to make good in, in the debate. And and this isn't just a critique of Bonson, it's really of most debaters uh, that are Christians, where we, 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 we quibble over these things. And so he says, the burden of proof in the argument between a theist and anti-theist would shift to the person denying God's existence, since the possibility intelligibility of that very debate is directly affected by the position taken. What I want to say here, though, is that if we have a proof, and typically in proofs, you demonstrate it, right? If you have a proof in mathematics, like, 
you, you take on that burden and you demonstrate the proof and then people critique it. That's how this, this works. So if we have a proof for Christianity, who cares about the burden of proof? Just take it on. Like if you have the proof, just go and present it. We don't even need the, the unbeliever to give his introduction, introductory remarks. He can just critique what we're presenting. I think we should take all of this on if we truly have a proof, which I think we do. So we should welcome the burden of proof. And it would change the way we do debates. This would fundamentally change the way we do debates. We're not requiring the unbeliever then to defend his position. We're saying we can refute your position through the truth of our position. If you think I'm wrong, show me. Refute my definitions, say that they're not natural to how we function, refute the axioms, or refute how the inferences are made. If you can't do that, then it's over. But there we go. That would fundamentally change our debates in the uh, atheist-Christian in, in interaction. All right, the next one is, to put your thinking caps on here for a second, is Van Til's apologetic is a deductive argument. Now you may say, well, how is that cleaning up what Bonson and Van Til said because you quoted extensively them affirming that it's deductive. And this is part of the confusion that comes along in their, their writings. They wanted to, for different reasons, um, sometimes write that the argument is a third category of argument. And I actually fell into this early on. Uh, this is like 2010 to 2015, of thinking it's the transcendental argument or Van Til's argument is some third kind of argument, right? You have inductive, deductive, and then transcendental. And then that's just simply wrong. But, but because they were wrestling with this, they would often, when, they, when they'd have to make good on the argument or actually go through it, it was all deductive language. Like they were in the deductive mode. But then when they would talk kind of stepping back and looking at the argument, its form, they would talk about it being transcendental as distinct from deductive. And I want to just clarify that that's, that's wrong. <clears throat> so Van Til says, when the Christian and his opponent use the same terminology, they do not mean the same things. Both speak of inductive, deductive, and transcendental methods. Okay, he wants to say that we, we all speak of these methods. It's the presuppositions, though, that we, we differ on. But again, in that point, he's assuming there's a third category, which is transcendental, which he has not demonstrated is actually different than, than deductive. <clears throat> and then he goes on and he says, if the axioms on which science depends are thought of as resting in the universe, the opposite of the Christian position is in effect maintained. <clears throat> I want to point out here that this is another thing that's missed that we'll get into. Uh, axioms, remember, are assumptions in the argument. Do we make assumptions outside of the argument? We talked about this a little bit before. Yes, we did. And oftentimes, when we don't understand that there are assumptions outside of the argument and assumptions inside of the argument, we interchange these things. And we start equivocating on words like assumptions or presuppositions. And he's doing this here with, with axiom. And we'll get into that in a, little, a little later here. Okay, so Bonson says, years ago, Van Til realized that opponents of presuppositionalism tend to think that there are only two kinds of reasoning, inductive and deductive. Deductive reasoning stands opposed to inductive. However, there is also transcendental reasoning in which the preconditions for the intelligibility of what is experienced, asserted, or argued are posed or sought. It too stands opposed to a purely inductive approach to knowledge. Critics seem to think that since presuppositionalism does not endorse pure inductivism, it must favor deductivism instead. 
This logical fallacy is known as false antithesis. And Bonson's going to get into why he thinks it's a different kind of argument. And we're going to show, I'm going to show how it's, it's not. But I just want to remind you of something we, I quoted many sessions ago. So here's now Van Til, here's Bonson talking about the actual argument. Notice how he shifts though into completely de deductive language. He says, it should be clear from the context here that Van Til meant to claim more that the argument is valid. And valid just means it's acceptable deductive argument. If, I, if you say this argument's valid, it means it's, ex it's a good deductive argument. It has made good on the conclusion deductively. That's what valid means. The conclusion follows necessarily from the truth of the premises. Okay, so he says it's more than that. Well, how is it more than that? He says, well, it's also sound. The premises are actually true. Okay, but we're still in deduction there, right? We haven't gotten beyond deduction in that qualification. So he wants, Van Til's argument is valid and sound, or you should say valid and true premises. Okay. And he says, moreover, the truth of these premises are knowable without prior acknowledgement or statement of the conclusion. That these things are acknowledged uh, without him realizing it because they imply the truth of the Christian worldview. Okay, implication, what is that? That's deduction. Right? All of this is, is deductive. All right, now... What Van Til, the reason why Van Til got hung up on this is Van Til was of the understanding that if we were to take, if we were to systemize Christianity deductively, formalize it, we would lose all of the mystery. So there are these antinomies, he would call them, or these seemingly contradictory things. They're not actually contradictory, but we just can't wrap our minds around them. That's where the, the heart of Christianity is in that, in that mystery. How God could become incarnate, for example. Things like that. Okay, a God's sovereignty over man's free will. All right, so what he, what he was of the, of the understanding is that if we, if we take the Christian faith and we were to formalize her and put it in a deductive system, all of that mystery would go away. And that's just, simply, that's just simply false. Okay, but that was his assumption. And so that's most of why Van Til wanted to say that Christianity was, was or the argument had to be more than that. But that was just a misunderstanding of deductive systems. The Bible teaches God's sovereign electing grace. It also teaches the universal offer of the gospel. I cannot logically comprehend the relation between these two, but this fact does not lead me to a denial of either of them. And amen. Okay, that's yes, correct. Just because you can't comprehend these two things. But that also, but that also doesn't mean, though, that therefore we can't formalize this. And that's where he's misunderstanding this. This argument that, that I gave can be formalized in a deductive system. In fact, I'll, Lord willing, I'll do that someday. But you have the axioms, you have your definitions, you have your rules of inference, you have your theorems, you have your deductive system. Okay, this is not uh, hard to, to, to do once you have all the components. All right, well, is there any, did, did I remove any mystery in Christianity in this proof? No, you probably learned more about your Christian faith. In this, in this proof. It actually gives you more information in, in your knowledge. And, and the mystery, though, actually only widens as, as there's that great uh, image in the last battle, C.S. Lewis's last battle, where it's like you peel an onion and it just gets wider, right? That's what the, the new Narnia is. As, as, you, as you dig into it, it just gets wider. Everything just gets, as, the more you know, the more you don't know kind of thing. That's what happens here when we, when we make deductive arguments in Christianity. 
Okay, now Bonson, uh, he's a little more well read on this stuff with analytic philosophers. And so with P.F. Strassen and some others, they want to make this distinction. And I, I need to go through this because it, it's so commonly missed. And because it's missed, uh, I think there's been very little success on actually showing what the argument is. So what he says is that it has this special logical feature where you can draw the conclusion whether a premise is true or false, he says. So whether the premise is true or it's false, the conclusion follows. And he misuses the term premise here because that's not what this actually is. And I'm gonna get, I'm gonna go through that. But this comes from P.F. Strawson, which is what Oliphant uh, quotes in Van Til's The Defense of the Faith, where it's, it's of this form. It says, Q is a presupposition of P, if and only if Q is true, provided P is true or P is false. Do you guys get that? Okay, I'm sure not. All right, so let's, let's slow down a little bit and let's sh see this out. He here is the first premise, if P then Q. Does that make sense? Q follows from P. Now what if Q also follows from not P? What could we conclude? What do you think? Q. Q is true. So if Q follows from either the truth of P or the falsity of P, then Q is true. Does that make sense? That's all that was saying. Doesn't that sound really complicated? Yeah, you can make things sound really complicated and like deep, and, but it's not. It's like, it's just this. Okay, that, that's all it is. But these people who are interacting with these arguments make it seem like, well, that's outside of logic. It's like this other realm of reasoning. It's not even deduction anymore. Well, no, it's not. Like, this is, this is standard inference in, in logic. This has been known for 150 years, okay, this, this form of argument. All right, so if you have a proposition that... If you have a proposition that follows from the falsehood or truth of another proposition, then it is true. Okay, that is deductively true. All right, so now we can change this to be in, in our argument. So we said if there's knowledge, then Christianity is true. That's what K and C represent up here. So if there's knowledge, then Christianity is true. If there's not knowledge, then Christianity is true. Therefore, Christianity is true. And that's the most common way people present this kind of argument. That's what Bonson would, how Bonson would, would present it. Now, we didn't present it that way though. Okay, so I presented the argument as if there's knowledge, then Christianity is true. And then the second point was, there is knowledge, right? Then just modus ponens, Christianity is true. Well, is my argument then not transcendental? <laughs> Is it not a presuppositional argument? Because you just said that to be a presuppositional argument, it had to be this other form, this one. Well, mine's not that form. So is it not transcendental anymore? Of course it is, of course it is. And the, the, the misunderstanding is that this is not required for a transcendental argument. You don't have to have explicitly that form. This has caused so much confusion in this. So I wanna, I wanna just talk a little bit more about this. It is extremely important. Okay, so I'm going to formalize this. Don't get scared. This, this is two symbols you have to know. Just two. An arrow and three weird dots. That's it. Now the arrow is just the if-then. If K, then C. Right, you're moving from K to C. So if K, then C. If there's knowledge, then Christianity is true. Second one is there is knowledge. And then what do you think the three dots represent? 
Therefore, thank you, sir. Therefore, therefore Christianity is true. Does that make sense? You guys, do you see now what that means? Okay. If K, then C. K, therefore C. All right, so that's the form that we used in our argument. Now this form, this middle form, is what Bonson was talking about and what most of the literature and transcendental arguments would talk about as far as um, what a presupposition is, how a presupposition is so unique logically. Okay, but did you know that you can take this middle argument and turn it into the right argument, the right side here? There's a third way to write this thing, this argument. I made that one up. Now, would you, now, so think about this now. The middle one is what they're talking about. The one on the right, so the first two premises are the same. Do you guys see that? They're formally the same? If K, then C in both of them? Got it? Now, look at the second one. If not K, then C is logically the same as this monstrosity. If K, then C, then C. Did you know those two are the same? Did that just jump out at you? No, you probably didn't. I could show this with truth tables, that this, this is true. Okay, but my point is, let's say that, hypothetically, I gave Bonson the right side, this third argument form. You never would have gotten confused that a presupposition is somehow this weird thing of, you know, whether a premise is true or false, then you get this other thing to be true. It would never come to you because conceptually you wouldn't think of it that way. This is why logic is so important. We can change the form of things many times and they're actually the same thing. But in your mind, they look like they're different. It's really important that we formalize this, which is what we've done. Now, the left one, though, the one that we used, is a distinct argument. So if you could prove Van Til's argument with the middle argument or the right one, either one, that is a distinct argument from the left one. And yet it's the same conclusion, and it's the same really way to, to, to get there mostly. Does that make sense? So you could do that, but you're getting to the, the same argument or the same conclusion. All right, so what makes a transcendental argument a transcendental argument then? This is really important. What makes it it? The first premise. What is necessary for knowledge? Knowledge is always the antecedent. It's always the left side. If you argue for something as being necessary for knowledge, you're talking about transcendentals. That's what you're talking about. That's what makes an argument transcendental or a presupposition, or whatever you want to call it. It's that first premise. Okay. Come back with me now. All right, so let's keep, let's keep going. This premise, then, is truth-directed. This is really important. This is a truth-directed argument. So when we look at this argument, right, if there is knowledge, then Christianity is true. There is knowledge, therefore Christianity is true. <clears throat> Notice that we are inferring a truth about the world. Does that make sense? Christianity is true, which is Christianity is a set or a collection of the plain teachings of Scripture, and we then they're all true, right? They're all truths about the world. God created the world. <clears throat> uh, God is a Trinity of persons. Jesus is His Son incarnate, rose from the dead, etc. Right? Ascension come back to judge the world, and we could go on to all sorts of other plain teachings of Scripture. But they're all truths, um, uh, metaphysical truths, right, of, of the world. Okay, so, that, so what we call those are truth-directed transcendental arguments, and they're rare, okay? They, they don't 
Van Til, to my knowledge, is the first one to actually construct one of these. The first one in the history of doing transcendental arguments. Now, people in philosophical circles who deal with this stuff have no idea who Van Til is, which I find humorous. So when you read their literature, which sprung up in the 1960s and has continued to this day, they basically have written off uh, transcendental arguments as truth-directed because they don't think it's possible, because they close off special revelation. So they just, and they don't know about Van Til and don't interact with it. Okay, but you could, you could say things, you could make it uh, belief-directed, right? We could change the argument to be this. If there is knowledge, then we must believe in Christianity. There is knowledge, therefore we must believe in Christianity. Is that the argument that we did? Is that what we, we proved? No, that's not what we proved. Now, would that be useful? Sure, that would be useful. But one doesn't negate the other. You can have both of these things. In fact, you could prove that if there is knowledge, then we must be justified in our belief in Christianity. Right? You could prove that as well. And if you could pr prove the belief, the justification, the truth of it, then you could prove that we must know Christianity to be true. My point in all of this is these are all different kinds of arguments that are transcendental. And many times what happens is people will take terms like believing in Christianity to be true and Christianity is true, and they'll use it synonymously. And this causes a lot of confusion. This, a lot of the, the critique right now from people like... Um, guy from SCS, Richard Howe, is that Bonson confuses uh, what we must believe to be true to what actually is true, which is not the same thing. And, and I understand why he, he has that confusion, because Bonson sometimes will, will say things like this. What I'm going to show is to prove anything, you first have to believe in God. So that sounds like a belief-directed transcendental argument, not a truth-directed one. So Howe would jump on this and say, oh, you see, he's committing this error here. He's not a, and Van Til does the same thing, and he has all these quotes and stuff that he, maybe I'll get to meet Howe someday and we can talk, clarify some of these things. But he has all these quotes from Van Til, and he talks about, you know, Van Til says that he's going to prove that this is the case, that we have to believe it, but yet he just also always goes into God needing to exist, and he's confusing these two things, and blah, 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 blah. Um, and... What I, what I wanted to get down is that this argument is truth-directed, it's not belief-directed, and that's not what Bonson meant by this. And that's what I want to clarify next. <clears throat> okay, so what was Bonson trying to get at here? I think what he was trying to get at is the transcendental nature of this reasoning. So the, the argument that we're going through, we talked about circularity. There are two kinds of circularity. What were those two kinds, do you remember? Vicious, right, which is not acceptable, or, or formal circularity. What's the other one that is acceptable? Not frames version, which we don't even know what that is, but the actual, it's called spiral. Okay, spiral circularity is what Van Til would call it. Um, <clears throat> so in this, I'm gonna give you a picture of what this looks like. I think this will be helpful visually. I think this would have clarified things for Frame and what he was talking about. And I think this would clarify things for um, a whole bunch of stuff in, in this topic. All right, so let's draw a circle. And inside, this is, our, this is our argument. So draw a circle, 
Whenever you make an argument, wherever you are in life, I don't care what you're doing, when you're making an argument, you are making, a you're making an either an inductive or a deductive argument. And these arguments all have the same components, basic components to them. Inferences might be a little different if it's inductive or deductive, but basically the components are the same. So draw a circle, you have arguments. Outside of these arguments though, we talked about, remember, assumptions that we bring to any argument. They are not necessarily in the argument. They are prior to any argument. Sometimes in the philosophers will talk about laws of thought, right? Logic is the most obvious case of this. I can make arguments, but I'm assuming that the letter that I'm writing is the actual letter, right, that I want to represent and not some other letter that's going on. I'm assuming consistency and order as I'm going through. But it's, it's prior to the argument, right? It's outside. I'm bringing it to the argument. You do this when you create proofs in mathematics, when you create pieces of music, when you, whatever. Whatever you're doing in reasoning, you're bringing these things to them. Does that make sense? They are, they are prior to any argument. And that's what we mean by transcendental, right? It's a necessary part of all of knowledge. All right. So we also call these things presuppositions. But we really mean the same thing here. Presuppositions, transcendentals, they should be interchangeable. I like to call them meta-assumptions. I think that's the most informative term for this. It's meta. It's outside of the argument. Okay, these are assumptions outside of the argument. Now, in this circle, we have deductive arguments, inductive, we have assumptions, we get to conclusions, and we have definitions. Whenever you're arguing, all those things, for the most part, are happening. You guys with me now? Okay, so transcendentals, or meta-assumptions, or presuppositions, they're outside of this thing. They're outside of your argument. Arguments, then, are distinct from that. <clears throat> okay. This is what Van Til, I think, was trying to get at when he said it's spiral circular reasoning. Right? We can, we, can, we, can, we can lock in on the truth of Christianity or some other aspect of it, but there's a spiral nature that's, that's going on. And so I want to uh, show that here. How, how is this spirally circular? Well, look at this. The meta-assumptions, right, we're bringing to any argument, but yet we can prove them in an argument, which we just did. Christianity is true, it's a transcendental. We've proven it as such. So it's prior to any argument. But yet it was the conclusion of the argument that we gave. This is really important that you understand that distinction. So it's circular. I used it. I used the truth of Christianity to prove the truth of Christianity. It's circular, but it's not viciously circular because it was never a, an assumption in the argument, which we call axioms. It was not viciously circular. Does that make sense? But it's, but it's circular, though. It has a, a distinct, unique feature to it, which is what Bonson was trying to get at. It is unique, but it's deductive. It doesn't make it non-deductive. And you also, there was nothing uh, assumed for Christianity as far as like explicitly true in our definitions, right? Because can, you can be biased in your definitions. I should say biased. You can be explicitly anti, uh, you can be explicitly, let's say I define knowledge this way. Uh, uh, knowledge is interpreting the world how God interprets the world, 
right? If that were my definition in the argument, that would be viciously circular, right? Because I'm trying to prove the truth of Christianity. Does that make sense? Like it'd be hidden in the def definition. All right, so we were not viciously circular in, in any of this, in any of this. This is the distinction then uh, between these two things. This also gets confusing in the term presupposition. So you'll hear things like, well, he has his worldview, I have my worldview. He has his presuppositions, I have my presuppositions, and we're gonna look at these things. But the, we're not even saying the same thing there. My presuppositions are actually transcendentals. Yours are not. So when Bonson talks about they have their presuppositions, we have our presuppositions, we'll critique theirs, you know, and then we'll affirm ours. That's all well and good, but these are not the same thing. We're equivocating on the term presupposition here. Remember, because the unbeliever, Van Til said, is only in a vicious circle. Right? He can't go anywhere with his presuppositions. So they're not actually then presuppositions in the technical sense. Anyway, okay, so this is really important. I'm sure some of you got half of this. That's okay, because it will be recorded for eternity so we can unpack it. But this is like at the heart of most misunderstanding of why, why we could never formalize this, why we could never lay out the argument, is not getting this distinction. And most of the disagreement with Van Til's argument by people who are professional philosophers who are Christians is on this issue. This issue and the whole thing of what they're saying about deduction. So it's extremely important that we went through it. I just chose it for the end so you wouldn't be lost in the, in the middle. Okay, so the last point I wanna make, this is kind of surprising, uh, but Van Til's apologetic is not necessarily reformed. As far as I can, as, as far as I know right now, and this is also really important that we, we get down. Van Til's apologetic is not necessarily reformed as of right now. Why is that? Well, Van Til admits that our argument is with the main doctrines of Christianity. Okay, that's what this quote is. The main doctrines of Christianity. The plain teachings of Christianity. Is the Reformed faith a plain teaching of Christianity? Do you know that reform, the Reformed faith is as true? Do you know as strongly that it's true as Jesus is the Son of God? Or God's the creator of the world? Do you? You'd have to to be part of the main argument. Now, do you know that your view on baptism is true? Do you know that with just as much confidence and justification as you do that Jesus is the Son of God? Probably you would say no, right? Because baptism as an issue is not an orthodox issue. Believer baptism and covenantal baptism, although I believe very strongly in covenantal baptism, right? There are these things that are not plain doctrines. We're allowed to disagree with them so far in what, in what we know. Does that make sense? Okay. But Van Til admits, in one of his rare moments of weakness, I think, that Reformed theology does not attribute infallibility to its confessions. Now, does he mean in every, like, minuscule detail, or is at the heart of it? And this is, this is central to showing that this is true. If I'm going to say that Van Til's apologetic is inherently Reformed, then I'd have to show that it's a plain doctrine. But no one's done that. We've assumed that, we've had certain arguments that have been given, but I don't know anyone today as a reformed person would say that I can prove this to be true like I can Jesus as the son of God. Now, does that mean that's always gonna be the case? Oh, I don't think so. I think eventually as the church grows in knowledge, right, more doctrines that are plain will become known 
And this, I suspect, will be, will be one of them. Maybe in our lifetime, we'll, we'll come to see it. But it has not been done so yet. But yet, when you, when you, when you read Van Til's writings, you could not read someone that uh, he, he says repeatedly that this is a reformed apologetic. There is no other kind of apologetic for the Christian. Absolutely, like no other apologetic, which would seem to say then that it's a, it's a, a plain doctrine. He says, there are two ways of constructing a proof for the existence of God. These two ways are mutually exclusive. The one is in accord with the basic construction of Reformed theology. The other is destructive of it. <laughs> like, there are only two options. One is good, one is bad. The one that's good is Reformed theology. It is only in Reformed theology that the means are available to oppose this modern approach. It is rather because only in Reformed theology is full justice done to the idea of God as man's creator. It will, it will be noted that the point discussed in the, in the preceding paragraph is the difference between Arminianism and Calvinism. It may be asked whether we should not in apologetics ignore the difference that exists between different theological schools and defend the common faith. Should we do that, he says, from what we have said above, however, it ought to appear that we cannot take this attitude. We shall not make much progress against the common enemy if we ignore such differences between ourselves. Okay, but if we're going to be that strong on this, that this has to be a reformed apologetic, then you need to make good that this is a plain doctrine. All right, so to demonstrate this, you'd have to show that an Arminian cannot accept these axioms. What axiom here can Ar is Arminian logically not allowed to accept? You know, t I know this is probably hard to read for some of you. Okay, but we went through all these, right? Before. I don't see any ones that are required for him to reject. I think most in practice reject the first, or axiom one and axiom five. That the Bible teaches that all people know with certainty that God created the world this gets through some of actually, uh, Lewis would probably reject this. We can get into that some other time. Uh, axiom five, that all Christian, anti-Christian worldviews are insufficient for knowledge. I, I know a number, number of our Arminians personally that would reject that. They think Islam is sufficient for knowledge, they, they would say. Okay, but I don't think they have to say that, given their system. They, more, they are inclined to say that, but I don't think they have to. So how then could we show that this is explicitly reformed? I think it has to be in how we define Christianity. We have to show that Reformed theology is a plain teaching. And if you can do that, then the argument is, is Reformed. But until you can do that, I cannot claim that the argument is exclusively Reformed. Do I think it's an accident that this argument came out of the Reformed tradition with Van Til, with uh, Warfield and Kuyper and looking at the history of philosophy? I don't. So I suspect that we're just in the early stages here of this, and eventually this, this will become plain in the church. But I want to make explicit that it is not plain yet. No one has demonstrated this plainly yet. And until we do that, we cannot exclude the Arminian from using this apologetic, at least not yet. All right, thank you very much for this. I know the last half of this is a little technical, but it's really important. If you get into this issue, these two, those two issues that, that were talked about um, are so commonly they, they cause struggle for a lot of people and has really grounded uh, advancement in this. Um, so thank you for these eight sessions and for coming out. This is a great blessing uh, for me to be teaching again in apologetics, and I hope it's been a blessing to you. And if you ever have questions on this, please call me, email me, or just say hi.
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the faith that we have. We thank you for our church and how you have blessing, been blessing our numbers. Uh, we thank you even more than that, how you've been blessing our worship uh, and our families and our uh, communion together and fellowship. I pray that you would lift, lift us up in the strength and the wisdom of Christ, but also in the peace of Christ, that we are set free of our sin in Jesus. Amen. Amen.